This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, everyone, welcome to the DLR Cast, your essential podcast of all things David Lee Roth by and for fans of David Lee Roth. And I'm joined, as always, with my good friend and fellow DLR fan, Darren Paltrowitz. What's happen- happening, Darren? Great Friday evening over here in New York. What about you in Minnesota? Uh, I, I am in a cool location because it is hot and humid here. So <laughs> it is I hope I didn't steamy. blow your spot by telling where you are. Witness protection's over with, right? It, correct. Correct. Yes, I, I have left the podcast witness protection program apparently so (laughs) good deal okay well glad i didn't expose anything bad there but always great to connect and always great to be talking to the dlr cast loyal faithful posse yeah all right so we have got a great interview which i had such a great time talking to this guy and i won't tease it anymore let's uh who so who we have who do we have coming up darren now, we have a man named Mitch Schneider. Is he Mitchell Schneider? I don't know. We'll call him Mitch Schneider. And the first time I ever spoke with him, late 90s, I was a teenager. And this man is one of the greatest publicists in the history of the music business. Not not hyperbole. Not hyperbole. Like, let's let's talk about the people that he's represented on and off for decades. Ozzy, David Bowie, Aerosmith, Hart. Tom Petty, and of course, the great David Lee Roth. I mean, come on. I, I I don't know. Is he the best person he's ever represented? I'm going to say so. Well, he does have a hell of a roster. He's uh, He is his own PR firm. Where, uh, he's been around for a long time, as you mentioned. The Mitch Schneider Organization, or MSO. You can find that at msopr.com. And yeah, he's got a lengthy list of people. His client roster runs from America to the Zappa Family Trust, A to Z, with uh, Joe Perry, uh, uh, Joe Perry, uh, Hart, Jeez, uh, Ozfest, Ozzy Osbourne, a bunch of people all in the middle. You know, he's this. He is still. He, this guy is one of the premier rock and roll publicists. And when he was working with Dave, as he called it, and you'll hear it in the interview, it was a front seat with one of rock's greatest performers. And it was. We'll get into this all in the interview, but it was. He was. Dave's publicist during quite a busy, busy time for Dave uh, post Van Halen. Yeah, I mean, to piggyback on that a little bit, before he started up MSO, the Mitch Schneider organization, he was working with Michael Levine, I believe that was his name. And then after MSO kind of evolved a little bit, uh, because a lot of the people that worked under Mitch started their own firms, I could think of like seven or eight different PR firms where the people worked under Mitch, and they're now kind of A-list. And that all evolved into SRO. Um, Mitch has a great team over there. A lot of the bands he's working with now, you look at that and you go, well, if this guy did Ozzy and Aerosmith and Bowie and David Lee Roth, he's obviously working with the next generation of greats. Like this band I spoke with the, uh, the other day called the black moods. They've already had four billboard charting rock hits and, uh, Mitch is great. I mean, I, I got even rewind further when I was a teenager. He's probably the first publicist that was ever nice to me <laughs> and given me good stories. And because of him, it's why I interviewed Dave in 2003 or 2004. Wow. Yeah. His, he seems like just a great guy and uh, his stories that, 
you'll hear in a bit are fantastic. We will have him on again because we just touched the surface. He was with Dave from 1991 to 2003. So he started with Dave at this at with the, a little ain't enough album doing publicity for that. Um, you know, we didn't touch on it too much, but that'll have to be another uh, episode because I know he's got a lot of stories about the Sammy and Dave uh, tour, the Sammy Hagar, the best of both worlds tour back in yeah. 2003. I think that was. And, um, yeah, it was great. And the timing is perfect for this week because our man Dave uh, was in the news this very week with a big, big feature in, of all places, the New York Times. Yeah, it's kind of a blessing that the day that we scheduled this interview with Mitch for was the day the Times piece came out. And Mitch had already read it and seen the photos. And I'm going to say, like, what, 25 percent of our conversation wound up being about the New York Times piece? Yeah, it was because, I mean, it really was a great lead into from what the way I got from him is that this is Dave. This is I mean, he talked about what probably went on to, you know, setting up that piece and stuff. But also the fact that just this is the kind of publicity that he's wanted, that it's not just rock and roll, you know, craziness, lifestyle. If you haven't seen this piece, it's at New York Times. It's all over the place. But really, it's it's a it was a big feature on Dave's artwork because he has been quite the prolific illustrator of late, as we've seen on his website and at Facebook with a lot of illustrative commentary on what's going on in the world vis-a-vis the pandemic and COVID and everything else. And he's been using frogs a lot, which was <laughs> a puzzle, which puzzled me until I read deep down. And this is typical Dave. I mean, it has something to do with his love of Huck Finn, I think it was. And it yeah. was just, he is far more well-read than I am. I mean, I he pro- in another life, he could have been a literature major, I think. So, uh, but the timing was perfect. And that to have Mitch on in the New York Times article just, I mean, was really it's got a great photo in there which mitch goes into how that photo was probably set up which was cool and and it was just those are the kind of articles that i've always loved just another side of dave who is he's a super i always got the impression he's a super private person i mean uh even as much publicity as he has always got when he lets you in you see a different side whether it's the you know the kung fu the karate you know lived in japan (laughs) and all that stuff you know what i mean it's like he does a lot of interviews as house in Pasadena. So you kind of see a little bit of just in the background of how he's living and what he's doing. And, and apparently he's painting all the time and he had some interesting thoughts in it about the pandemic. And well, I'm not going to give it all away and we do want to get to Mitch, but yeah, I would, if you're a fan and you're listening to this, which is why you're listening to this, uh, I would highly recommend finding that New York times piece if you haven't already. Yeah. To pull the curtain back a little bit, you and I were talking for the last, two weeks of, well, on one of these episodes, we have to talk about Dave's name change and is it real? What's the future for him? And luckily the New York Times article addressed the name thing. It addressed kind of what he plans to do in the future and all that. So that saved us uh, potentially looking a little foolish and uh, (laughs) almost like wrestling fans buying into the storylines is the reality a little bit. So that was a little bit of a blessing. But another great thing about Mitch is he shared a great story about Ted Nugent in there who he worked with for a long time. Oh, yeah. I'm going to guess he worked with Nugent for maybe 86 to 2002. That's another long-term one. And then he shared a pretty good Steven Tyler story in there, too. So even if you just came for the Roth, you also get the Tyler and the Nugent, almost like a three-for-one there. 
Yeah, well, that's a testament to a publicist and you've worked with and I've worked with a lot of music publicists. You certainly do every day. That's a testament to your talent, your ability and just the relationships that you keep, that you can keep a rock star on your roster for a decade or more. Uh, You're getting it done. You know, I mean, that you're you're and it's with especially when you look at what he did with Dave and and Ted at that time, you can make the argument. I mean, they were. Ted certainly started at 80, he started in 86 with him with a little Miss Dangerous album past his prime. This was years past several years yeah. past Strangle Stranglehold. Uh, I like those albums actually. Me uh, too. I, have the, sure. I have all those albums, you know. Uh Dave certainly, I mean, A Little Ain't Enough came out in in 91, right? At the start of the grunge era and and sales were declining for Dave a bit. So the fact that he got a lot of publicity for those guys and and got you know kept kept attention on their records and stuff uh it couldn't have been easy but that's a testament to his talent and tenacity i think well connecting everything in a weird bizarro small world thing our last episode had linus of hollywood linus dotson on as our special guest and linus was the singer of a band called size 14 and one of the ways I found out about Size 14 was they were represented by Mitch Schneider and MSO in like 96, 97. So the more time that goes by, if we're talking about rock superstars, it's kind of like all roads lead to Mitch Schneider in a way. It seems a lot of, a lot of them do, for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's more artists that have worked with him than haven't worked with him when you're talking about the superstars. I don't know if ACDC worked with him, but if they didn't, I'm sure they almost did or somebody who worked with ACDC did. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, yeah, certainly it was a cool conversation. And uh, what do you say we get to it? Yeah, let's get this one done. And Steve, I got to say, I'm afraid this sets the the watermark a little high for our podcast. Uh, I think <laughs> I don't know where we go from here. How many bisonets can we get on here? How many other publicists of Dave can we get on here? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're going <laughs> to we've landed some good. You've landed some great interviews. I mean, these have been fun talking to these folks and I hope the audience is enjoying it. And uh, yeah, go back and check the previous episodes, Lines of Hollywood and the guys from Limousine Beach are a lot of fun. And uh, we will have more guests in the weeks and months ahead. More to come, to say the very least. So, you know, thanks to everyone who's listening. Thanks. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for streaming. And uh, here's our interview with Mitch Schneider. When I think of the best publicists in the music industry, all time, you're top at that list. Not only that, one of the first people to actually take my inquiries when I was a teenager and be nice to me. So can you take that compliment? Yeah, you know, it's real, it's just, it's awesome to hear that. And, you know, I always said, because, you know, I started out as a rock critic and I used to work with publicists. So when I became a publicist, I always said, well, I should become the best version of the publicist who would be able to easily work with journalists and make their life easy. So I always maintain that philosophy was, uh, is the journalist needs being met. Um, that was just constantly always a part of what I did when I started. And to this day, we still, not only me, but just the whole company, we abide by that. And we're here to serve the media. I mean, of course, we're here to serve the client, obviously. They're the right. ones pay- paying. But you know, I've said through the years that clients can come and go and the media stays. I mean, 
what would be the point of getting back in the day i used to tell people what's the point of getting into an argument with robert hilburn of the los angeles times who may not have liked your client at the time it's like it would be like well first of all we want to know bob hilburn's opinion whether you right. like it or not um certainly he was one of the best rock critics in the country so but then i would just tell my staff if someone doesn't like it that's their opinion and you move on to the next journalist and if you still have that client you present the next album to the journalist and maybe they might like that one see the whole thing just goes back to the fact i started as a journalist so some albums i would like some albums i wouldn't so that's just how I did my gig as a PR, just drawing always on my experience as a journalist. And our intro to the show is gonna name the extensive, extensive all-time greats that you worked with. And still, when I see bands on your roster like Black Moods, who I'm talking to later today, you kind of go, well, if Mitch is working with them, there's a reason that they have hits and big things are gonna come. So there's no shortage of great people you worked with. And Steve and I had to talk to with, uh, talk with you, to you, I don't know which one you say, because you worked extensively with the great David Lee Roth. What were the years of that? So I worked with David. Uh, we started at 1991 with the album A Little Ain't Enough, and we worked all the way through the 2003 album, which was called Diamond Dave. Right. Now, during that time, and there was always so much going on with Mr. Roth, there was the first Vegas residency in 1995, which we can talk about as we get deeper in. <laughs> there, there was the autobiography. There was the two new songs on the best, Van, the best of Van Halen album and the controversy that went around that from the MTV Awards. Um, there was the co-headline tour with Sammy Hagar. There was the album with the DLR band. There was also the solo album, Your Filthy Little Mouth. Yeah. And there was, and we'll get into it, the very bizarre video he did called No Holds Barbecue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was this crazy uh, pop culture mashup uh, experience that, and, and it was so tightly and quickly edited that it was just mind-blowing to watch it. And so, yeah, so I had a front seat with definitely one of Rock's greatest performers. Um, and, you know, I, people asked me about him. And, you know, I always said he was very meticulous, very detailed, very exacting about what he wanted. You know, and it's never necessarily, quote, easy, unquote, to work with artists like that. But it, it really asks you to step up your game as a publicist. So I definitely thrived on the challenge. I considered it a privilege. And I would work with him in a heartbeat again. And it was so cool to open the New York Times today and see a, a, almost a full page uh, in the arts and leisure section about the quarantine art that he is producing during this upside down moment in history. So he still carries huge cachet um, and a, a true visionary and not warm and fuzzy to be around. <laughs> but you know what? That really goes for a lot of rock and roll greats that I've worked with. 
but it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's like, I never worked with Bob Dylan, but I probably wouldn't want to meet him necessarily because it's not going to be warm and fuzzy. And, but if you're looking for warm and fuzzy, then you're not going to go down an exciting road. Uh, so I have really thrived on working with difficult artists. When I say difficult, that's how they are described by the outside world. They're very difficult. But I've never really perceived it as difficult. It's sort of, they want to get it right. They're really detailed. When, when we first started working with David Lee Roth, I'll give you a couple of examples. Sure. And I know you haven't asked any really questions yet. And what I'm going to tell you is very funny because it's about this. So, okay, so it's 1991. I yeah. go, I think he was doing a photo shoot. So I had to interview him for his bio prior to the photo shoot. And that's where, I think that was the second time I met him. The first time was in the office in West Hollywood, Pete Angeles. Okay, so um, I sit down, take out my tape recorder. I mean, I'm, you know, I still am in journalist mode and that's why a lot of artists like to work with me because they perceive me as a journalist, not only as a publicist. Right. So I, I, I take out my questions and he takes the questions from my hand. He goes, oh, let me look at this. He looks at it and then he gives it back to me, but he, I, he doesn't actually physically give it back to me. He just turns it, the piece of paper over and puts it on the table and says, oh, you won't need these. And then he just talks for like <laughs> nine, 90 minutes, which admittedly was incredible. However, he still didn't answer some of the questions I had. So with that said, I'm throwing it back to you for you to ask me questions. Uh, <laughs> well, you said 91 to 2003? Yes. Okay, so that precedes the K-Rock Radio and the EMT journey, but that includes basically the comeback and kind of rebuilding a guy who everyone knew was talented, but... <laughs> I don't know. In, a lot of people thought that he was kind of over if they weren't already diehards from Eat Him and Smile and that kind of thing. Yes. So that was a perception of David Lee Roth. And I mean, look, he's no longer in Van Halen. So right away, it's, it's different. And there was Steve Vai on guitar. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just, it was a different scenario. And I think that it just, people had a hard time wrapping their head around David Lee Roth's solo completely because, you know, for David, it wasn't just merely about rock and roll. It was about pop culture, mm -hmm. that he saw himself not merely as a, a vocalist and songwriter. Where's my place in pop culture? When we worked with him, he was more... Like he was happy when I brought back a feature in that cool downtown New York publication called Paper. Mm -hmm. That meant more to him than me bringing back a big story in a music publication. It was always about what is my cachet with the groovy people. That meant a lot to him because he felt he had it sewn up with the rock fans. And well, you could say that he did have it sewn up, but he maybe he didn't fortify it enough when he went into his solo years because uh, he was again he was he was larger than life where am i in pop culture it's not just merely about 
rock and roll. Um, I mean, the Vegas residency, that's a perfect example. He went in there early. It was 95. Mm-hmm. I was I was there with him. And he's he was also on Leno at that time. And you can go on YouTube and watch the clip where uh, uh, Leno, it's not only the performance, he performs California Girls with all the girls and all of like the whole Vegas look. He's interviewed and, you know, it's his, you know, his double entendres, which some people love and some people groan at, <laughs> um, you know, and he said something on the panel. And I just looked at the clip earlier this morning before this interview. And uh, he said something about California girls. Oh yeah. They could make uh, Michael, Michael Jackson, Jackson. Qu- quit the boy Scouts. <laughs> And now that's something he also said on stage. And he later said in an interview that the people at Bally's told him that humor will not fly. So the Vegas residency, I went there for it. I remember being there two nights before um, and you had to meet the Vegas media. So there was like a cocktail hour uh, planned and uh he was really super gracious as only he could be. And he did everything right. And I just think that his presentation was definitely ahead of its time. And his, uh, some of his jokes might've been too strong for Vegas. Because you have to remember, you know, when they were promoting in Vegas, it wasn't like a whole rock audience there. There was a Vegas audience. So some of his humor, uh, some of his jokes were definitely turning people off. And, but again, you know, he gave you like pure unadulterated David Lee Roth. And I remember having a great time and I could, I really remember only the good times. I remember there were times where he may have expressed displeasure about something, but he wasn't the first one. If I were a musical artist, I would definitely make my publicist work really hard and say, (laughs) What ideas do you have? Is there a way to position me differently? I mean, these are things I've worked, you know, with folks like Prince and Steven Tyler and David Bowie. I, I worked with David Bowie for 21 years. Right. And, and David was somebody who was very interesting to work with because very much like David Lee Roth, that aside from the early, when I, started, when I first started working with David Lee Roth, Pete Angelos was the manager. Then right. they part ways, and David Lee Roth has no manager. And traditionally, with Bowie, at the time, at the years I was working with him, there was no official manager. There were manager consultants that were hired onto campaigns. So I was having one-on-one. And in rock and roll, it's often that you deal with the manager, mm-hmm. and that's how you get to the artist. But in working with Bowie and David Lee Roth they contacted you directly. There was no wall. So you had to be so on your game that it was ridiculous. I mean, I, I look back and I go, wow, those were, those were really crazy special times. And it's also before the internet, really, a lot of those early days. So a lot of it was happening on the phone and it wasn't, well, you said this in an email. It wasn't right. about that. It was about live conversations. It was very much about the here and now. Yeah, some people used to say, I remember you saying that, but there was sort of like no documentation. 
So I think that I was able to be more freewheeling at that time. And I would really speak what's on my mind. Like everything now is happening in email. So you just right. got to be like ultra careful. So I know I'm digressing, but so, but so did David Lee Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Before I let Steve get one question, there's just one thing I got to know. Because Steve, Steve's going to have the smart questions. I'm going to have the detail-oriented questions. And that's, okay. my wife and I went to see the second and the third Vegas residency, uh, residency of this show that he was doing earlier this year. And before we went, I said, hey, I want to show you a video of the original show he did in Vegas. And mm -hmm. it disappeared from YouTube. The Tonight Show is there. There used to be an EPK up of the original hmm. Vegas Mambo Slamber thing and it disappeared. Do you know if any of those shows were actually filmed, if they're in anybody's archives? No idea. No idea. And it seems like somebody like David Lee Roth, again, who's really meticulous and detailed, probably removed them from the internet. He probably scrubbed it clean. Uh, because again, I had fun but it was an early attempt and he was criticized by some people for it. So he probably just had it, maybe he just had it removed. Got it. Over to you, Steve. <laughs> hey, Mitch. <laughs> um, so you were saying when you started with Dave, it was with uh, the Lily Enough album and where he was at in his career as far as, you know, kind of the rock and roll thing was changing and kind of, you know, wasn't probably not as hot. Well, he wasn't as hot, let's say, as when Eat Him and Smile first came out, but so kind of a two-part question was it somewhat kind of uphill given where he was at with his career plus you got the ascendancy of grunge at that same time frame i mean i i'm a big fan of that album i consumed uh, virtually every interview you got booked for him at that time but you know <laughs> you're preaching the converted because you know this is obviously the dlr cast but uh there you know so there's that kind of question the other part to this was did he did he care about album reviews at all? Because, I mean, I think back to the famous quote from Van Halen, well, all the critics hate Van Halen and, and love Elvis Costello because they, you know, they look like Elvis Costello. But I'm just wondering right. if deep down, I mean, if he, and I, I've known plenty of artists who haven't cared a whit and other ones that were, you know, took issue with some, re with, with reviews often. Yeah, um, I would say David Lee Roth is the kind of artist that, didn't live his life by album or live reviews. Um, I mean, I think he would be happy if somebody said something nice about him in Time Magazine or Rolling Stone, but it didn't define his day. His ego is just too big to have one person alter his day. Right. That, you, that, that's the perception I've always, I've often had too. I was just curious though, because I mean, some albums have been much better received than others. And I mean, as an artist, you're obviously creating and you're creating for the public. And, but I often wondered if he just was even kind of above that. It's like, listen, this is what I'm making. This is what I'm doing. It's, it's not going to bother me one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, just even the visual presentation of David Lee Roth, it wasn't meant for the rock critic intelligentsia. So he fully knew the tools he was playing, you know, the tools he was playing with. And again, for him, it was about um, not letting people tell him what to do. I just think that would hold him back. I mean, I just right. think of like those, the lyrics to Running With The Devil, those are his lyrics. And mm -hmm. 
I think that perfectly lays out his boldness that he, no one's at home waiting for him. <laughs> and it was just, I mean, those are some of the best rock and roll lyrics. Um, and I really believe that, like, that was like his, that, that he lived like that. That's his anthem. He lives like that. I mean, Stephen looking at the New York Times today, just sitting in his outfit with paint on it. And you know, he staged that photo with the photographer really well. Yeah. I just looked at it and, but that's David Lee Roth. It's like, well, you might as well look good. Speaking of photos. So when we first started working with him, I guess it was the little Ain't Enough album or it was another album. He gave us a photo of, that he was recording somewhere in Vancouver. Um, Probably the warehouse. Oh, yeah. The famous, okay. van, the famous hotel, the hotel photo, his, his yes. hotel room photo, correct? Where he's, yes, sitting, exactly. where he's sitting amidst a complete disaster of a destroyed hotel room with, I think, a groupie somewhere in that shot as well. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I remember like when I saw that, I said to myself, oh, my God, this is a perfect example of immaculate disarray. <laughs> and so it was our job to get that photo planted in the media, which we did. That photo is so staged right to where the, the bottle of alcohol is situated to where you see the, uh, the groupie gal, the group, the seeming groupie gal somewhere in the back and where every thing is laying in that photo. And it's like, oh my God, it's so well thought out. But you know what? He just made it fun for everybody. There was nothing, there's just like nothing dull about David Lee Roth. Everything had to be big, exciting. And he was just so, freewheeling and funny and well thought out. If I could just remember the press conference for the David Lee Roth, Sammy Lee Hagar um, uh, co-headline tour. It's the Mondrian Hotel. Forget what year. And three, I think. Yeah. Okay. And somebody says something about Gary Sharon. And he says, Oh, wasn't he in the vagina monologues? <laughs> which is such, which was such a great way of putting a line in the sand of who the real Van Halen singers were, as opposed to Gary being a temporary singer. I like Gary Sharon, but it was a funny line that definitely put David Lee Roth out in front. It was like, it was so instantly dismissive and funny and it's just so David Lee Roth but that's him it's like he's really well thought out and I remember that day after uh after the press conference we had uh arranged for one-on-one -on -one interviews and he got a hotel suite I don't think Sammy Hagar did that um I could be wrong and of course, the hotel suite, you know, there was enough alcohol and uh, food for every journalist who was coming in. But that was David Lee Roth. It's like, I'm going to be larger than life. I am going to be memorable. And for me, he was so inspirational. Steven Tyler, same thing. Just a great Steven Tyler story. Please. I remember, <laughs> I remember, okay, I told him, I said, I just love the fact that at the bottom of your microphone stand, when you perform, it says, bite me, or it says, eat me, I forget. It's one or the other. So I said that to him. I said, I think that is just 
really funny and well thought out. And he looks at me and he just says, well, what do you think? It's like that stage is a complete canvas. And there's 14 to 15,000 people in an arena watching every, not my only every move, but every spot on that stage. And it's like, so the way he would hold the microphone up and under the bait, you know, on the bottom of the base of it, it had that line to like further engage his audience. And no one had ever done that before. And, and even down to the, his microphone stand when he was wrapping uh, the scarves around it. I know it, the scarves also concealed his drugs, which was mentioned in all the Aerosmith books, but it was like instantly, it's like he created something that was totally unique and there was only one Steven Tyler. There's only one David Lee Roth, only one David Bowie, one Prince, one Tom Petty, Springsteen. They all will do things. Um, to be distinctive and you have to so like working with those people is amazing and david lee roth was certainly one of the you know for me one of the most exceptional people um always surprise uh, always surprising and funny you know bless him that's a great analogy out there the stage is their canvas i mean it just it went beyond the music for for guys like that all the time. Yeah. I even remember somebody telling me, and this is unsubstantiated, that when David Lee Roth and Steve Vai were together, that Steve Vai had to stand on the stage so many feet away from David Lee Roth, and there were almost markings that he could never be too close to David Lee Roth, which he was in, quote, the spotlight. So I don't know if there's truth to that story, but it wouldn't surprise me knowing how exacting David Lee Roth is. Yeah, there has been a lot of things like, for example, after a certain point in time, you couldn't have a blonde lead singer and open for him. Things of that nature where he knew what was best. And, you know, everybody has their pros and cons uh, to them. But one thing I'm curious about, going over the whole timeline of when you worked with him, you were there for the MTV Awards incident. And I've seen the famous clips of Alex mm. and Eddie saying that if they ever see Dave, they're going to kick him in the balls, which I don't know who thought that that was the greatest comeback uh, in the 1990s. But... Dave was kind of silent over the whole reunion, except for what was in his book. Do you know if he actually thought he was going to rejoin Van Halen? I really don't remember. You know, I remember being at the MTV Awards, and I remember that David Lee Roth told me, and he may have said this to people in the media, that when they went up on stage, and my memory, that was a really, it was so crowded backstage that night like it was just hard for me to really remember and it all happened so fast i remember david lee roth was not happy that eddie van halen on stage mentioned something about a hip operation and he, yeah, thought he brought that, that up was, in his book yeah. yes he thought it was the most unrock and roll thing to say that here we are trying to get people back into us as a foursome and it was like what a buzzkill to talk about your hip operation <laughs> Um, he, he was right. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. Now, I also remember the day it was me and my assistant, Amanda Kagan, who is also a publicist. Amanda, and she, uh, if I can pause it right here. Yeah. When we say that Mitch has worked with the greatest of the greatest, so many people who worked under you 
have become the kings of publicity themselves or kings and queens and Amanda's helped reinvent sticks to say the least mm. poison et cetera et cetera et cetera so go ahead yes <laughs> yeah so I remember that David Lee Roth asked us to send out a fax because this is when there was fax more than the internet had just started I guess I forget yeah of course it was 95 and whenever that thing was with the MTV awards 96 it, it Okay, so it doesn't work out. The two songs are on the best of album, mm -hmm. but it's not gonna go any further than that. And mm -hmm. I think that David Lee Roth wanted it to go further, but it didn't. And um, we sent out a missive via fax. It's probably on the internet, just stating from him his, how upset he was that it wasn't working out. You could probably find it on the internet. I just remember that morning, Amanda and I standing in front of the, the fax machine going, wow, this is pretty heavy what he's written and we're about to start sending it around. But I can't seem to remember exactly what it said, but it was very pointed. Steve, I've never seen that, have you? I've... I, I haven't seen the full text, but I have a general, I, I remember hearing that story and it was kind of his, like you said, a missive because, and it was after the MTV awards of, of, I can't remember how far after, but I just remember at the time thinking, wow, okay, now he's finally talking about it. I, in hindsight's twenty twenty, but I look back on that where there was so, there was a lot of acrimony, but it was really from one set of brothers to a lead singer. And I thought Dave more or less kind of, held his fire until that fax with the exception of the fact that he brought up and i remember him talking about that as well and later in the book but you know the whole hip comment i mean it was just it was really a it was it, it must have been very tough for you to navigate mitch and maybe there's other reasons why you don't remember it all because it would have seemed like it was a minefield for goodness sakes it, or it yes. could have been kudos yes. kudos to your hard work and professionalism for uh you know, for it going, you know, for at least the way it was portrayed in the press uh, to a large degree. Thank you. You know, um, with, it's interesting to look back on me, you know, the media and things that happened before the real dawn of the internet, because there are things that happen that you can't precisely remember, but now you can because of the internet. Like one of the things I did for Ted Nugent, I was his PR guy for many years. Mm -hmm. um, it was back in 1986. I heard that Muzak, the company was going up for sale. I read it in the USA Today money section, Westinghouse owned Muzak. So I remember looking at it going, oh, wouldn't that be cool if somebody bought Muzak to destroy it? So, a story in USA Today said Westinghouse was selling it. So I called up Ted Nugent via his manager, Doug Banger. We all got on the phone. And I said, can I call up and make a bogus offer to buy it? And let's see what happens. So I, call, I think the USA Today story said it, like it was going to go up for like, I don't know, 23 million or whatever it was. So I came in with a deliberately low offer. And it was to a secretary or assistant on the phone. And I, I mean, I just had really like big cojones then. I probably wouldn't do it now because I know about lawyers and all of that. So I just said, I represent Ted Nugent and he's very interested in purchasing music and he'd like to offer $8 million. And this, uh, the person on the phone told me 
well, that's way under what's being reported. So I said, well, thank you very much for the consideration. And a day later, I put a press release out saying Muzak turns down Ted Nugent's offer to buy Muzak. <laughs> and which was so great. And the, and the quote we had was, he felt that Muzak was ruining the best minds of the generation. So he wanted to buy it to destroy it. That was like... Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that distinctly. <laughs> well, that's great. So that was kind of like my punk rock guerrilla tactics I was <laughs> using in, in publicity. And I remember that we got so much press on it. And Brian Gumble on the Today Show talked about it without Ted even being a guest. I consider that to be the highest form of publicity. If you could do something and get it in the news where the artist is not talking about it. And that was great. Funny, there's a funny uh, ending to this story. Years later, um, whoever bought Muzak uh, was going to, yeah, uh, somebody else was buying it years later. And they called up and asked me if Ted Nugent would come as, as kind of make an appearance at the press conference. But of course, Ted said no, because he knows that when you have a publicity stunt, it's, you do it and it's over and it's done and it leaves its mark. Anything else would have just been perceived as superfluous. So, but I tell that story because you can now find that story on the internet because someone did a piece about music and they included it. So I was able to like show my daughter and my wife, uh, like here it is, that great publicity stunt that I did because there was no real record of it on the internet, but now there is. And so it's kind of weird just, just to look back at all the times that I've been through with artists like, again, like my earliest days with David Lee Roth, um, it's not on the internet, so you have to go on memory. I didn't save every hard copy of a press release. And there must have been some great ones on David Lee Roth, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, wrapping it up, if I can just get one more question in besides whatever Steve wants to ask. Um, Mitch, is there anything that people have wrong about Dave? Um, I don't know. I, I think... I think if you're really a fan of David Lee Roth, I think that he puts it out there in interviews he's done. Certainly the autobiography that he wrote, you don't even really need to interview him. That's who he is. Um, I, you know, it, it completely, that is totally him. And he, um, again, it has to be larger than life. You know, just like the New York Times today, that photo of him, it, it's almost like painting overalls if you look closely at what he's wearing it's like oh my god this is so well thought out and it just i looked at it and it just made me smile saying he's you know he still gets it right um i i don't know i just like i said before if you look at the if you look and listen to the lyrics to running with the devil that is david lee roth and i think he still lives his life like that so what you see is what you get. Steve, anything to add? You know, I was going to ask you, Mitch, I mean, you were with him during such a, I mean, he did a lot during the time you were with him, but the biggest mystery for me um, at that time and still to a degree today is the whole no holds barbecue 
uh, thing, because if I got this right, you were doing publicity for something that was supposed to come out, uh, something very strange that I don't think ever was physically, I know it wasn't physically ever commercially released, and yet there was press about it. I mean, <laughs> yes, okay, and, and, and it's still a mystery watching it. I've seen most of it. I know it's on YouTube, and it's just mm. one where I just go, I, I, what the hell? <laughs> but from a publicity standpoint, as a, as a marketing and publicity guy, I'm thinking, how the hell did you, you know, what was the strategy on, on doing that? What was that phone call like? Okay. So he shows us the, uh, he shows us the no holds bar video, which is a quickly edited piece with music, karate, <laughs> pop culture. Uh, he's in different costumes. <laughs> yes. It was the whole, it was the whole crazy thing. And it was really, I remember laughing and thinking this is really funny and it's very avant-garde in its own way. And, you know, again, like noting that he likes being in hip New York publications like paper, I understood. So he asked about getting it out. And I said, well, aside from putting a press release out about it, we should send it to people. So there was a v there were like 100 VHS copies made and we sent them out to the media. And I remember like a, couple, a week or two after people received it and had a chance to watch it, it was definitely a WTF, like bitch, <laughs> what's going on here? And it's sort of, it's like David Lee Roth. There has to be a, I know I sent it out with either a letter or a press release. I wish I had it. Oh, I can, um, I can, I might be able to dig it up. I got two VHS copies and a letter that I remember ended with the word, what was that? The W A. What was that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, and, yeah. And Mitch, I have the photo of it on my wall. I'm going to walk the computer over oh, there. Wow. <laughs> you, um, I don't know if you could see see it right there uh how do i angle it it's next to gallagher okay <laughs> oh man how, how do i show this on the thing it's, oh there you go go to your right oh yes it's a hand-drawn kind of thing he did yeah uh wow yeah definitely looks um memorable um, so yeah it, if you have that note if you could just take a picture of the note on your phone and send it to me see if i uh, because I would, I would love to look at it. And yeah, it was definitely a moment of, for me, a challenge to do PR for one of rock and roll greats who slipped commercially, but kept his career interesting and fun. Um, some of it, there was a man, you know, like I said, Pete Angelus was managing him early on. And then I think Steve Barnett came in for a while. Um, but that didn't seem to last. I, it's amazing looking back that I lasted as long as I did. Because, you know, David Lee Roth is, it's, it's all quick and it's like, what's new, what's fresh. But he, he liked me long enough to stay with me that long. And I was always very truthful. Mm -hmm. and, but to a certain degree, when someone is paying you, you have to be a bit of a yes guy. I mean, I'm just being really honest about that. I think that as a publicist, you can say the media may take umbrage with something. There's a way to tell an artist that this might not be right. Um, so it's always like that fine line to walk. Uh, 
And again, I, I always tell that story, like I told you, like walking into interview him for a bio and he looked at my questions and he turned it over. And he goes, you won't need these. And he just talked and riffed and brings you into his world. And there you go, Diamond Dave. <laughs> that New York Times article today was just, I mean, if you hadn't followed him for a while and you were wondering, I mean, he still seems exactly the same. This stream of consciousness, non sequitur sort of thing that all kind of ties together this overall theme, what he's trying to put forth out there, in this case about his art. And you know, <laughs> I was out of breath by the time I finished reading it, trying to you know get yes. all the references and figure it out, but I get it. <laughs> yeah. One of the great things that David Lee Roth would say, and I, I, I use it to this day, and I always quote him, it's such a great David Lee Rothism because it doesn't really make sense, but it does make sense. When he didn't like something, he would just say, 1-800-SEE-YA. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, what did you just say? I mean, you get it. It's like, I, I don't buy into this. But he's saying 1-800-CU and it's like, it's confusing and, but it's such a great line because you get it, but it's stamped with his vision so indelibly. I, 1-800-CU. Mitch, can we have oh. you on for a part two sometime? Anytime. I just love, you know, I love to riff and there's always good stories. I've never written a book. I sort of don't have plans to write one. So when I have interviews like these, I'm like, oh my God, this is great. It's like my mind is, is just reeling and rolling right now. So I'm really honored to be a guest on your show. Thanks for all the praise that you threw at me. And uh, thank you. See you in the streets. <laughs>